Chapter Four of The Way of the Wind by Zoe Anderson Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Four. Upon each trip to the station for provision or grain, Seth met with tail ends of cyclones, or heard of rumors of those that had just passed through, or were in process of passing. Strange enough stories of capers cut by the fantastic winds. He told these tales to Celia with a vein of humor meant to cheer her, but which had an opposite effect. Love blinded, he failed to see that the nervous laughs with which she greeted them were a sign of terror rather than amusement. One night, he related, after a day whose sultriness had been almost unendurable, a girl had stood at the door to her dugout, bidding her sweetheart good night. She opened the door, he stepped outside, and a cyclone happening to pass that way facetiously caught him into the atmosphere and carried him away somewhere she never knew where. Strewn in the path of that cyclone were window sashes, doors, shingles, air mattresses, remnants of chimneys, old iron, bones, rags, rice, old shoes, and dead bodies, but not the body of her blue-eyed sweetheart. For many months she grieved for him, dismally garbed in crepe, which was extremely foolish of her, some said, for all she knew he might still be in the land of the living. Possibly the cyclone had only dropped him into another county where, likely as not, he was by this time making love to another girl. But though she mourned and mourned, and waited and waited, for the wild winds to bring him back, or another in his place, none came. "'They've got to tie strings to their sweethearts in this part of the country,' the old gray-haired man at the corner grocery had said, "'if they want to keep them.' Another playful cyclone had snatched up a farmer who wore red and white striped socks. The cyclone had blown all the red out of the socks, the storyteller had said, so that when they found the farmer flattened against a barn door as if he had been pasted there, his socks were white, as if they had never contained a suspicion of red. They had turned white, no doubt, through fright. Evidently knives had flown promiscuously about in another cyclone, he said. Hogs had been cut in two, and chickens carved ready for the table. There were demons at work as well as knives. A girl was engaged to be married. All her wedding finery had been made. Dainty it was, too, so dainty that she laid it carefully away in a big closet in a distant wing of the house, far from the profane stare of strange eyes. She made discreet pilgrimages to look at those dainty things so dear to her, lingerie white and soft and fine, satin slippers, fans, gloves, and a wedding gown of dazzling snowiness. The day was set for the wedding. Unfortunately, how could she know that, the same day was set for a cyclone. The girl could almost hear the peal of the wedding bells, when along came the tornado, rushing, roaring, shrieking like mad and grasping that wing of the house, that special and precious wing containing her trousseau, bore it triumphantly off. 
A silk waist was found in one county, but the skirt to match it lay in another, many miles away. Her beplumed hat floated in a pool of disfiguring water. Her long suede gloves lay in a ditch, and her white satin wedding slippers, alas, hung by their tiny heels at the top of a tree in a neighboring township, the only tree in the entire surrounding county, put there, in all probability, to catch and hold them for her. Naturally, the wedding was postponed until new wedding finery could be prepared, but, alas, a man's will is the wind's will. By the time the second trousseau was well on the way, the affections of the girl's sweetheart had wafted away and wound themselves about another girl. Here and there the prairie farmers had planted out trees in rows and clumps, taking tree claims from the government for that purpose. In many instances, cyclones had bent these prospective forests double in their extreme youth, leaving them to grow that way, leaning heavily forward in the attitude of old men running. Of course, there were demons. God could have nothing to do with their devilments, Seth said. Seth had great belief in God. One had maliciously torn up all the churches in a town by the roots, turned them upside down, and stuck their steeples in the ground, as if in mockery of religion. "'Why do you call them cyclones?' the old man at the corner grocery had asked. "'They are not cyclones. They are tornadoes.' And this old man, who had once been a doctor of medicine in an eastern village, and who was therefore learned, though he had been persuaded by some wise men to go west and grow up with the fools, went on to explain the difference. "'A cyclone,' he said, "'is miles and miles in width. "'It sweeps across the prairie, screeching and screaming, "'but doing not so very much damage as it might do, "'just getting on the nerves of the people "'and helping to drive them insane. "'That is all. "'Then along comes a hailstone. "'It drops into the southeast corner of this cyclone, "'and there you are.' It generates a tornado, and that is the thing that rends the universe. Seth had listened to these stories undismayed. For what had they to do with his ranch and the magic city upon which it was to be built? A cyclone would never come to the forks of two rivers. The Indians had said so. Tradition had it that an old squaw, whose name was Wichita, had bewitched the spot with her incantations, defying the wind to touch the ground on which she had lived and died. It must have been that this old squaw still occupied the spot, that her phantom still stooped over seething kettles, or stalked abroad in the darkness, or chanted dirges to the slap and pat of the grim war-dance of the Indians, for the winds, growing frightened, had let the forks of the river alone. Seth was very careful to relate this to Celia, to reiterate it to this fearful Celia, who started up so wildly out of her sleep at the maniacal shriek of the wind. Very tenderly he whispered the reassurance and promise of protection against every blast that blew, thus soothing her softly back to slumber, after which he lay awake, watching her lest she wake again, and wishing he might still the universe while she slept. He redoubled his care of her by night and by day, 
doing the work of the dugout before he began the work of the fields, not only bending over the tubs early in the morning, for fear such bending might hurt her, but hanging out the clothes on the line, for fear the fierce and vengeful wind might tan her beautiful complexion and tangle the fine soft yellow of her hair. For the same reason, he brought in the clothes after the day's labor was over, and ironed them. He also did the simple cooking in order to protect her beauty from blaze of log and twinkle of twig. If he could, he would have hushed the noise of the world for love of her. And yet, day after day, coming home from his work in the fields, he found her at the door of their dugout, peering after the eastbound train, trailing so far away as to seem a toy train, with a look of longing that struck cold to his heart. His affection counted as nothing. His care was wasted in spite of which he was full of apologies for her. Other women, making these crude caves into homes for themselves and their children, had found contentment, but they were women of a different fiber. He would not have her of a different and coarser fiber, this exquisite southern creature, charming, delicate, set like a rare exotic in the humble window of his hut. It was not her fault. It was his. It was his place to turn the hut into a palace for his queen. And so he would, when the wise men came out of the east and built the magic city. When the fools had made the plains a fit place for human beings to inhabit, planting trees to draw down the reluctant rain from the clouds, sowing seed and raising crops sometimes, to their surprise and the amazement of those who heard of it, the wise men would appear and buy the land and the building of great cities would begin. Already they had reared a town that dared approach in size to a city on the edge of the desert. But what had happened? An angry cyclone, hearing of it, had come along and snatched it into the clouds. Furious at sight of its spick and span newness, its yellow frame shanties and shining shingles, it had carried it off as if it had been a hen coop, and set it down somewhere in Texas, a state that had been longer settled, and was therefore a better place for houses and fences, and left it there. Then the wise men, growing discouraged, had gone away. But they would come again, he promised himself. They would come again. They must. Not to pass through in long vestibule trains, whose sparks out of pure fiendishness lighted the furious prairie fires that were so hard to put out, smothering the innocent occupants of the dugouts in their sleep and burning their grain. Not to gaze wild-eyed through the shining windows of these splendid cars as they passed on and on to some more promising unwind-blown country, to build there their beautiful cities of marble and of stone. They would come to stay. When? Why, when they should find a spot unvisited by cyclones, and that spot would be in the place of their dugout at the forks of these two big rivers, the Big Arkansas and the Little Arkansas, the little river that had real water trickling along its shallow bed year in and year out, and the big river whose bed was dry as a bone all the year round until June, when the melting snows of the Rockies sent the water down in floods, 
in fierce, uncontrollable, and pitiless floods to drown the crops that had been spared by the chinch-bugs, the grasshoppers, and the hot winds. All this Seth told Celia, finishing with his old rapturous picture of the glory of the magic city, which he called after the old witch who had driven the winds from the forks of the rivers, Wichita. He talked on, trying hard not to let her listless air of incredulity freeze the marrow of his bones and the blood in his veins, or cut him so deeply as to destroy his enrooted hope in their splendid future. Taking her in his arms, partly to hide her cold face from his view, and partly to comfort her, he offered every possible apology for her unbelief, wrapping her about with his love and tenderness as with a mantle. He thought by day of the coming of the child, and dreamed of it by night, trusting that, whether or not she shared his belief in the magic city, when she held it warmly in her arms, that little baby, his and hers, the homesick look would give place to a look of content, and the hole in the ground would become to her a home. End of chapter 4 Recording by Roger Moline